Hey, it's Pastor Sam. I want to thank you for tuning into this week's sermon, which is from our current sermon series called Our Aim, as we look at the mission of Sacred City Church, which is to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. You can find more information about Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois at scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Nehemiah 5, 14 through 19. Moreover, from that time, I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king, 12 years. Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us, Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. This is the word of the Lord. I love it. Hearty amen. Uh, we're in Nehemiah chapter 5 today. And actually, one of the things that we learn very quickly as we read, uh, study Nehemiah is that leadership matters. John Maxwell is, is a modern-day leadership guru who says this. It's his famous quip that everything rises and falls on leadership. Now, this is not only true in the business world where you see this turnover of of CEOs or in the sports world where you see this turnover of coaches, depending on how well they're doing or how poorly they're doing, but this also applies to every other arena of life, primarily the big three spheres that God has ordained to be led. First is the family. God has created the family, and he has put men in families to lead their wives and their children to the other, other sphere is the church, the covenant community of God. God has appointed pastors, godly and qualified men, to lead the church, the family of God, toward Christ. And three, God has ordained the state and civil government. All of these, all of these entities will rise and fall. Their, their level of success, of flourishing, will rise and fall based upon the leadership. The leadership will always determine the direction. Now, we know this. We know that leadership matters. In fact, that's why there's going to be a massive turnout on Tuesday as the polls open for voting. Now, let me, I don't do this very often, but allow me to do a sidebar before I even get into my sermon here, okay? This this text warrants it. The the circumstances of this week warrant it. So, So hear me out here. Little sidebar. As an American... As people who are American citizens, we must realize that voting is a tremendous privilege. You could have been born in, in, in communist China. 
You, you could have been born under a monarchy where you have no say in your leadership. You have no say in who represents you. But it is by God's grace that you are born in a constitutional republic. This means that we have the constitution as a document that orders our society. It gives us guardrails. It gives us rules and laws for how our society, our, our American society should function. And as a republic, we have the privilege of electing our own representation to go and enforce and uphold said constitution. It's a tremendous gift from God. And it's one of the reasons why I believe that it's an incredible privilege to be an American. And with every good gift that we got, get, we ought to utilize this good gift. We don't just tuck it back in the closet. We utilize good gifts. And we ought to do the same thing. And Christian, well, excuse me, as Americans, you ought to vote. Now, when you go to the polls, if you are a Christian, you don't just go as an American, you go as a Christian American, or rather an American Christian, the descriptor first. As a Christian, as an American, you have a privilege to vote. As a Christian, you have a duty before God to go and vote in a manner that reflects the lordship of Jesus Christ. That means, according to the word of God and with a Christian conscience, we vote. Now, this necessitates that we know the issues. Not only do we know the issues, but we know what the Bible has to say about it. Not, not just current cultural opinion, but the word of God, the living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword word of God. And then we must know which candidates most align themselves to that. Now, this can be an overwhelming task to sift out all the information. There's so many candidates. Most of us don't even know who's going to be on the ballot. That, that's fine. Most of them, you might even know, know where your polling place is. So to help you, there are a lot of resources. There, there are ways to go about and acquiring that information that help you live into this privilege, this duty that we have before God. One of them that I want to point you toward is myfaithvotes.org. All right, so between now and Tuesday... Live into your Christian privilege, live into your, Christ, or your, your American privilege, your, your Christian duty before God to find representation that most aligns himself to the word of God. I think this is a tremendous gift. I don't, I don't ever, I, I've never said this before. Never, never have I said this before. So if you're your first time here, it's like, oh boy, this is one of those churches. Well, hang on tight, baby. But... It's a tremendous gift. It's a tremendous responsibility. And the reality is, statistics show that only a third of Christians vote. Only a third of Christians vote. And it's no wonder why we as the church feel underrepresented in our state, in our nation. It's, it's no wonder why we look at what's going on in the world and we see secular Humanists taking office and fulfilling these roles and twisting things and creating new laws that lead our country and our state off the rails in a godless direction. Complaining isn't enough. We must use our agency to vote. But just voting isn't enough. We must live lives that reflect the lordship of Jesus Christ. So that's my sidebar. 
inside bar, back to Nehemiah. Leadership. Now, Nehemiah, oftentimes, the book of Nehemiah is oftentimes used for one of two things. When, when a pastor decides to preach to the book of, of Nehemiah, it's usually motivated by one of two things. One is for a building campaign. Right, we got to build a building, so we need, you know, Nehemiah. Obviously, God's people need a physical space to do their stuff. Right, so the building campaign. The other one is for leadership lessons, sort of the two cliches of using uh, Nehemiah. Now, both of these reasons are good reasons to go to Nehemiah. Um, God's people do need a physical place to worship, to be together, to gather together. And Nehemiah is, in fact, a great and godly leader. Now, since we already have a building here, we're going to look at the leadership piece today. And actually, this, this leadership stuff is sprinkled all throughout the book of Nehemiah. There's, there's not just one chapter that really hammers the topic of leadership. It's throughout the whole thing. And through this chronicle, we see that Nehemiah is, in fact, a godly and effective leader. And, and what we can extract from that are, are what I have assembled as the, the five C's of godly and effective leaders. In chapters 1 and 2, we got a slide here. You can follow along. Chapters 1 and 2, we see Nehemiah's calling. That's the first C. Nehemiah was called by God. This wasn't just like this, this inkling that he had in himself. God had called him to a specific task. He gave him assignment to return to Jerusalem, rebuild the wall. And as Nehemiah has this calling, he's able to cast vision and call other people along with him. And we see the second C in chapter three and four. Nehemiah, we see his competency. So a, a good and effective, a godly and effective leader is going to have certain competencies, know-how. Know They're gonna know how to do things. We see Nehemiah's strategicness, his effectiveness. He's able to do stuff. Today we see him actually throwing stones up on the wall. We see his competency. In chapters two and four, Nehemiah's conviction is showcased. This is when there's opposition coming from outside the people of Jerusalem that want him to stop building the wall. And he says, no way. God has put this before me. This is mine to do. I am not backing down. He resists the opposition. He is a convictional leader. Chapter five displays Nehemiah's character. We saw this last week when, when evil had crept into the people of God, when there was injustice going on, Nehemiah didn't call a truce with it. Nehemiah didn't just sweep it under the rug. Nehemiah rejects evil and calls God's people to righteousness. See the character of Nehemiah. Now today in verses 14 through 19, we see the fifth C, but this is really a break in the chrono chronological story. Right, the narrative of the rebuilding of the wall, what we have here in these five verses is basically a journal entry from Nehemiah himself. And as he writes this, he wants to intentionally key us into a few things about his leadership. Three things. One, we're told that Nehemiah was officially appointed as a governor, and by who? Two, we see this contrast from Nehemiah and his predecessors, which is the fifth C that we'll get to today. And three, it shows what compelled Nehemiah to lead in the way that he did. Now, this gives us a framework for the kind of leaders that we ought to follow. And additionally, it informs Christians of how and why we ought to lead wherever God has appointed us to lead. And one thing that we got to keep in view this whole time, just as we see in Nehemiah, is that everything rises and falls on leadership. 
So let us dig in together. Open up your Bibles with me. Nehemiah chapter 5, we'll start at verse 14, and we'll truck our way through here. Moreover, from that time that I was appointed to be the governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. Now, in this one verse, Nehemiah is, is telling us a couple things. One, it says that Nehemiah is appointed as governor of the land of Judea, right? So Jerusalem isn't covered at Judea is a, is a large section of land. Jerusalem is a city within that. Nehemiah is appointed to oversee, to be the governor, to take a civil office for 12 years. We see a God-worshipping, courageous, convictional leader occupying a position in the civil sphere. Now, this is something that we as Christians should long for. Godly leaders leading people. And Nehemiah has this official position, and it's not just a title that he, he self-prescribes. Uh, it's not something that is self-proclaimed. It's not a, a Chaz scenario, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, you know what I'm talking about, right? Where they just said, we're going to create our own city and create our own government or lack of government and sort of this self-proclaimed thing. That's not at all what's going on here. Nehemiah tells us that he was appointed to this position by King Artaxerxes, now, when he did this, we're not exactly sure. I'm convinced it happened right when Nehemiah was sent back to go to Jerusalem, but we can debate that later if we want. But ultimately, the one doing the appointing was God. We know this because in Romans 13, verse 1, it says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. We see the same mentality, the same theology working itself out when Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate's like, aren't you going to bow to me? Aren't you going to bow to, to this thing? I've got so much power over you. And Jesus, to his face, says, you would have no authority over me unless my father had given it to you. So every authority whether in the family, within the church, or within the civil sphere, is ultimately a derivative authority from God. Fathers, husbands rule on behalf of God. Pastors, elders lead and rule on behalf of God. Civil servants are to rule on behalf of God. In fact, we see this because in, in Romans 13, as you keep reading down that, the apostle Paul calls these civil magistrates ministers of God. Which in our, in our paradigm, in, our, in the way that we view politics, that does not necessarily line up. Because we're usually like, well, these guys seem like they want nothing to do with God, yet they're still here ruling. Well, just because someone has been appointed to it by God's authority, using God's authority, doesn't mean that they always use that authority in a God-honoring way. But it's still there. God has appointed them to it. Now, as rebellious leaders lead to a demise of society, godly leaders will lead to the flourishing, the prospering of society. We see with Nehemiah that he's proving to be a godly leader. The people, even though they're, they're, they're functioning under fire, they are, they are flourishing. Their work is going on. There's, there's a lot of hiccups along the road, but they're moving forward. And what we see in verse 14 is that to be a governor of Jerusalem, to be a governor of any, any land, any territory in the time that Persia was ruling the, the Eastern world, it came with privileges and perks. And we were kind of keyed into them in verse 14. 
The brothers that, that Nehemiah refers to is uh, an entourage of civil servants. Guys who are there with him under his jurisdiction, sort of functioning as, as, as uh, lower magistrates, magistrates under Nehemiah's authority to, to lead out the work that they're doing. And we're told that there are 150 staffers. You go further down to verse 18, 150 dudes that are under his administration. Now with that, not only does he have this entourage, Nehemiah is entitled to an, a considerable stipend of both a, a, a luxurious home, food, and drink. Back in chapter one, we saw that, that King Artaxerxes gave Nehemiah the resources that he needed to build himself a home. And now, in verse 18, we see the spread of the governor. If you jump ahead just a little bit, he says, um, oh, I'm in the wrong testament right now, so that wouldn't have been good. Verse 18, now what was prepared at my expense for each day, here it is, was one ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. So, so it's this, this pretty lavish feast, almost a feast for a king, basically. And a lot of times we read this and we, 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 there's almost this assumption that this food came from Persia. Like King Artaxerxes out of his treasury sent this stuff back to Jerusalem, which would have made no sense. It would have spoiled by the time it got there. So how this worked was instead of this food stipend coming from Persia, this stipend would be levied from the Jews in the form of taxation. Now, before you um, libertarians get your undies in a bundle here, um, you have to understand that, that ta there is such thing as legal, as godly taxation, okay? There is a, a legitimate, there's a lawful version of taxation. Now, Nehemiah, as governor, is lawfully entitled to tax and collect his due from the people for doing his job. This is a biblical principle, um, we see this back in the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul repeats it again in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, do not muzzle an ox while it treads out grain. So somebody doing work ought to be compensated. That is a biblical concept. Now, Nehemiah is entitled to some kind of a stipend, but in verse 14, we're told that he doesn't take that stipend. He doesn't take his food allowance. And this is actually what sets Nehemiah apart from his predecessors. Let's look at verse 15. He says, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. Now, what we're seeing here is unlawful taxation, stupid high taxation percentages that are oppressing the people. And so what Nehemiah is saying, these, these former government uh, governors and their servants, they, they lorded this privilege over the people. They reached beyond what was lawful and placed heavy burdens upon the people. Now we can see how men in those positions can use their position as a means to gain power and privileges for self-gratification. This is the, we, we confess it today, we have this inward bent towards selfishness. And, and as you increase in power, that selfishness, unless unchecked, or if it's unchecked by the gospel, is going to compound and compound and make things worse and worse and worse for other people. This is a trait that we see found in both Pharisees. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, woe to the, the scribes and the Pharisees who, who put these heavy burdens upon people. 
But it's also a trait that's found in, in kings and career politicians. In fact, in 1 Samuel 8, as, as Samuel is warning God's people about the, the dangers, the setbacks of having a king, is the fact that they're going to be taxed heavily. There's this natural greed, this natural power and privilege hunger that a sinful man can exploit to the disadvantage of the people that he's intended to rule. Now, what we see with Nehemiah, where the predecessors were, were unlawfully taxed and where they're wickedly using their power, Nehemiah doesn't do this. Nehemiah rightly occupies his role as a minister of God, as the governor of Judea. Let's look at verse 16 together. He said, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall and we acquired no land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, that's his entourage, Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because of the service was too heavy on the people. We see a stark contrast between the predecessors and Nehemiah in the way that they governed the land. Nehemiah was not, unlike his predecessors, Nehemiah was not there to be served. He wasn't just sitting in his cushy palace, you know, somebody dropping grapes in his mouth and serving him wine and cheese. Nehemiah was out there getting his hands dirty. He says, I was out there with my entourage. We're there throwing stones around. We're there, you know, I don't know if they got pulleys at that time, but they're, they're moving this heavy weight. They're stacking those stones. They're building the wall. They're doing the work that they're calling people to do. And in this, with his position, Nehemiah doesn't take a profit. He says, I didn't, I didn't get, acquire any land for this. I didn't, I didn't do this to, bro, uh, to, to bolster up my personal portfolio. In fact, what we see is it actually cost Nehemiah to, to fill this office as governor without taking the stipend. He says that he, at his own expense, that, that all of this stuff that he said, all the, all the, the, the ox, the sheep, the birds, the, the wine, all that stuff was prepared at his expense, out of his own pocket. It cost Nehemiah personally to feed his staff and to carry out the, the mission that God had called him to. Now, when we think about the way that, that leadership is set up, when specifically in the civil sphere, like we, do we rarely ever see uh, uh, an elected official in a suit, knees dirty from getting down, bending, you know, putting the wall together, doing whatever it is that they're, they're trying to do. Rarely, if ever, do we see uh, an elected official, a governor, a senator, or whatever, down on their knees like this. It doesn't fit our paradigm of, of leadership. And so we have to ask the question, why would Nehemiah, why would Nehemiah forego what he was entitled to? Is, it, is he just predisposed toward, toward generosity? Perhaps, but verse 18 actually tells us. Verse 18 says, Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. 
Nehemiah was sensitive to the strain that this building project put upon the people. He knew that they were sacrificing greatly. They were leaving their homes. They were putting, like we saw last week, their own personal um, wealth building, uh, the, the economy on the line. They, he saw the sacrifice that they were making as they responded to his call to rebuild the wall. And what he didn't want to do was overburden them with, with a, a over-the-top, exasperating tax. So Nehemiah declines to take the stipend. He could have. He was entitled to it, but he declines to take it. And in his declining of the stipend, we see the fifth trait of godly leadership. Here it is, compassion. Fifth trait of of godly leadership is is compassion. This also does not make sense to us if we're thinking in worldly terms of what good and effective leadership is like. His compassion is often viewed as a hindrance to productivity, Right? If we want to get this job done, I don't, I don't have time to worry about people's feelings. I don't have time to think about the people who are actually doing the job. We just got to get it done. And a lot of type A, like mission-driven leaders often bulldoze people. And I'm preaching to myself here for a minute. And they're not sensitive to the people that are willing to come along with them in the mission. Compassion can be viewed as a hindrance to productivity because this ultra-driven leader just wants to get stuff done at any cost. And as, as they operate like this, they're operating like brutes. Their leadership is harsh and exacting and oppressive. In fact, a lot of times, the, these, these leaders... Don't, don't just view compassion as a, a hindrance to productivity, but they view it as weakness. It's a sign of a weak leader. And so they're left as compassionateless leaders, compassionless leaders. But there's another form of compassionless leaders, one that, that we probably would just linger in the shadows of this dominant type of leader, and, and another form of compassionless leadership is abdication. Compassionless leadership comes from people who have been appointed to a position by God and they abdicate their responsibility to lead in a God-honoring way. This is what it looks like in the home. It's a husband who just stands back and says, hey, honey, we'll do whatever, whatever makes you happy. That's what we're going to do. Sort of letting go of the reins. And when the, the, the husband steps back like that, he's not stepping underneath the load he was meant to carry. And then somebody else has to stand under that load for him. And all of a sudden we find his wife being treated like a beast of burden. She's the one that's got to carry the load. She's the one that has to step in and fill the gap that he is refusing to fill. 
And you see this also in the kids where, where kids, they, they sense this void and they got to pick up the slack. There's something in them. Hey, something's not right. We got to step into this. And you rob them of their childhood. Abdication of responsibility is compassionless leadership because it exposes a lack of care for those that God has placed under your dominion. Now, whichever form, compassionless leadership is stifling and taxing. Both forms. Either the dominant one or the abdicating one are both exhausting and taxing. Both of them will lead to a kind of burnout or relational mistrust. And with time and enough circumstances, this leadership will be rendered ineffective. It'll be unrecognizable leadership. And this is true whether it's in the home or in the workspace, or in the church, or missional community, or in the public square. Comp- compassionless leadership is ineffective. Not only is it ungodly, it's, it's ineffective. It doesn't work. What we see with Nehemiah is that he is full of compassion towards his people. He, he has a big heart for the people that God has placed him over. Such a big heart that he's willing to sacrifice for them at his own expense. This is a perfect example of what, what we talked about. I don't know if you go back to the Father's Day sermon that I preached. We were doing that sermon series of cruciform. I, I wrote that whole sermon series just to get to that one sermon. <laughs> this is what it looks like to lead from the grave. To, to pour your life out, to, to dump it out, uh, buckets full at a time. So, you, so you are effectively putting yourself down in the grave the more that you expend yourself, trusting in the resurrection power to lift you up for another day of leadership. Nehemiah shows us what it looks like to lead from the gate grave, to pour himself out. And we see the same thing in the apostle Paul, Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, when he goes to the Corinthians and says, listen, I, I was entitled to pay. I was entitled to do, to get compensation for the ministry, the teaching, the preaching that I was doing, the discipleship work that I was doing, but I surrendered my rights. I, I took at my own cost, I, I took that upon myself for you, for your benefit, for the mission to move forward. Paul says this. And as we imitate Paul, as, we, as he imitates Christ, Christian leaders too, regardless of what sphere you've been appointed to be a leader in, must imitate this compassion, this compassionate leadership. Colossians 3 commands all Christians to put on a heart of compassion. But this heart of compassion should be most demonstrated among the leaders in the church, Christian leaders in the world this willingness to lay down your rights, to lay down your life so that others might live and flourish, that you would lead from the grave. Okay, but then what what enables us to do this? What, What enables us to pour our life out like this? What enables us to lead from the grave? Well, what motivated Nehemiah? 
Was it a predisposal towards this uh, of compassion? Is he just a naturally inclined guy toward compassion? Perhaps. But he tells us that there's something else that was driving. In fact, the primary reason that drives his compassion is found in, in verse 15. He says, I didn't do the, the stuff that the other governors did because of the fear of God. Because of the fear of God. Now, in simple terms, what compelled Nehemiah to live and to lead in the way that he did, it was a realization that God is real and God is objective. Nehemiah lived and ruled as if God is real and is the objective standard for all things, even compassion. Now, through the Old Testament, the New Testament, one of the refrains that we hear over and over and over is that God is compassionate. Psalm 145, he's full of compassion, full of kindness. And because God is perfect, God is perfectly compassionate. He shows us what the standard of compassion is. The word of God shows us this. And because God calls us to be like him, Nehemiah knows that he ought to live and rule in the same way that God does. He's to reflect God to his people. He lives coram Deo before the face of God. He sees God, he sees the standard, but he also knows that he's gonna have to give an account for his leadership. In fact, that's one of the things that pastors are warned of. It's like, you have to give an account before the Lord. Husbands, you're gonna have to give an account for your family. Did you lead in a way that was Coram Deo, that God's face was before you, that you saw his instruction, you saw his character and emulated it? I'm about to say something really hard here. True compassion, true leadership is impossible without the fear of the Lord. True compassion, true compassionate leadership is impossible without the fear of the Lord because without the fear of the Lord, without the standard, uh, an objective standard, without someone that we are accountable to, how are we going to know what compassion is? The fear of the Lord shows us this. Without that, we're, we're gonna be led to, to one of two ditches. Either we are going to totally reject the idea of compassion. We're gonna say, we're gonna agree that, that compassion is weakness. And, and we're, gonna, we're gonna operate in our monkey brains like Joe Rogan suggests, and live into the travesty of Darwinian survival. Just, we're, we're just a clump of, of matter. And, and what does it matter if compassion is a thing? It's survival of the fittest. So inhumane. Or the other mistake that we make is that we will reject God and his statutes and create a counterfeit compassion. A human invention based on popular wisdom of the age. And we see this 
counterfeit compassion all over the place in our society. All over the place. This is what it looks like. Counterfeit compassion calls the killing and dismembering of millions of fetuses healthcare. Oh, we're doing a good thing. We're, we're helping this woman out. No, no, you're killing a child. How is that compassion when an image bearer is snuffed out? Counterfeit compassion means advocating for the expansion of the welfare state that more government money would get dumped into ineffective programs to serve the poor, which really only hurts them. And, and here's the deal. It distances us, real humans, from re interacting with other real humans who have needs. So we say, hey, well, I paid my taxes. Uncle Sam's going to handle the poverty issue. And I look at somebody who actually has needs and say, I already did it. I took care of it. It's an abdication of responsibility. We say, well, well if the welfare state is bigger, then, then we can actually fix this. No, this, this is counterfeit compassion. It's a distancing of ourselves from our obligation as Christians to love the poor, the disfranchised, the needies, the widow, the orphan. Here's another one. Counterfeit compassion is the false claim that the most loving thing that you can do is affirm your LGBTQ plus friends and family. They come to you, and listen, I'm not saying, I'm not saying you, you smite them. I'm not saying you're, you're naturally combative. I'm not saying you degrade them as they are image bearers of God. But to go along with the false narrative, the most compassionate, the most loving thing for you to do is to agree with them and just applaud them. It's wrong. You're leading them in a path away from God. It is not compassionate at all. This is all false compassion. And there's about a dozen other things that I could just list off. Those are some of the biggest ones. This is all false compassion. And the reason that we know it's false compassion is because it is compassion that is manipulated to anti-Christian, anti-God ends. The chief end of that kind of compassion is not the glory of God. It's the glory of man. This is something that as Christians, we need to understand what objective compassion is. This is one of the reasons why this Christian worldview seminar, like I'm, I'm willing to invest hours and hours of preparing to help us understand what the Bible actually says about things that we might not even realize the Bible speaks to. This godless compassion is the prevailing spirit of the age. You might call it wokeness, just in shorthand. Wokeness is a cesspool of arrogance. It is the, it is the claim that we can know better than God what compassion is. But here's the thing, friends. Lawless compassion is always weaponized against God's people. Not, not just God's people, but all people. 
Lawless compassion, uh, compassion detached from the objective standard of God is always weaponized. Why do you think we have cancel culture? Why do you think Kyrie Irving is getting raked through the, the coals right now? And, and that's that maybe not a great example, but there's all kinds of things where this wokeness stuff is going on. And, and what it does is only uh, compiles the brokenness, only mountains up the rebellion and enslaves people to a new kind of tyranny. Well, you must do this or you're not this. You must do this, think this, believe this, post this, or you're not this. And we just eject you. And then what you end up with are secular Pharisees who are laying out a new religion that's not Christ is Lord, but you can be the, you can be Lord. Secular Pharisees who lay up heavy burdens on the people. But listen, I'm speaking to very relevant and pressing cultural matters here. And some of you are probably squirming in your seats because, but this isn't new. Like it's, it's new to us, but it isn't new. Because there is this natural inclination in all humanity that we know better than God. You can trace it all the way back to Genesis chapter three. And that spirit is in us and it manifests in different ways. And and every time that that rebellion against God spikes up, guess what? It enslaves us. It doesn't lead us towards righteousness. It doesn't lead us to the good life. It doesn't lead us to human flourishing. It leads us to the opposite. It leads us to to an inhumane, inhumane existence. It leads us to suffering and to misery and more and more rebellion. This is one of the reasons why the Exodus story is such a, a potent story through the scriptures. It's something that gets brought up again. It's sort of a, a prototype of what happens with Christ. But the people of God, in slavery, heavy burdens piled up upon them. What do they need? They can't get out of it themselves. What do they need? Who do they need? They needed Moses. They needed a man of God to stand up and say, here's where we're going. God called him up. He said, Here, here's where I'm going to have you take my people. You're going to face all kinds of oppositions. Persevere. Go, go, go. Show your character. Lead the people and do so compassionately. Now, Moses, was he a perfect example of this? No. Not perfect. He got angry at the people. He did a lot of grumbling under his breath. But we see is God used this man to deliver his people out of the tyranny of wickedness. And God has used Moses as a prototype to point us towards the truer and better Moses, the truer and better Nehemiah. Because without the fear of the Lord, Without seeing God for who he is and living in life, we're all going to be subjected to the tyranny, the oppression of the spirit of the age. And God has sent Jesus to come and set us free from this tyranny, to set us free from the oppression of our minds and our hearts and to bring us into freedom. We might stand up here and applaud Nehemiah for being a great leader. God, I stand by it, a godly and effective leader. 
But Jesus is a leader that perfectly embodies all five of these C's of a, a godly and effective leader, perfectly. Jesus was called by the Father to enter into the world. Not, not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped, Jesus put on flesh. Jesus lived and navigated this world competently. Jesus knew God's word. Jesus knew how to navigate a broken world by attaching himself to God's word. He did nothing except for what the father told him to do. We see Jesus's conviction in the garden of Gethsemane. Anguishing. I mean, spiritual torment, physically, like manifestations, sweating blood. Jesus could have backed out. She said, hey, let's, let's run this back in a couple hundred years. Maybe we'll get it right next time. But Jesus stuck to it. He said, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus navigated all the years of, of his life, his time here on earth, radiating godly character, not a ounce of sin in him. But this all comes to a climax here when we see the compassion of Jesus as we're told that he looked at the people like sheep without a shepherd. Our world thinks freedom is a total lack of restraint. That that's the idea that our society, that the culture has of what freedom is. But true freedom is found within restraint. Having the right Parameter, having the right rules, the right things protecting us from our own destruction. Jesus came and said, look, these people are off the rails. They don't have a shepherd. They don't have the right thing reining them in so that they would flourish. Jesus had compassion upon them because they were sheep without a shepherd. And he says, I'll be their shepherd. And unlike a hired hand, Jesus said, I am the true shepherd. I'm the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. See, Jesus, Jesus saw our desperate state. Jesus saw the, the tendencies that we have to be tossed around by the spirit of the age, enslaved to a new kind of master. He saw our moral failures that have accumulated on us like debts, like chains around us that have bound us from pleasing God. And he says, I will come in and meet them in their desperate state. I will remove these heavy burdens from them and I will place them upon myself. And Jesus, like Nehemiah, took the cost upon himself. Jesus denied his rights as the creator of the world, as the king of the cosmos, and it was nailed to a cross, emptied himself. And because Jesus did this, Nehemiah's prayer in verse 19 takes on a truer and more profound significance. Listen to this. Nehemiah prays, after hearing all this good stuff that Nehemiah's doing, he, he prays to God, remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Now just imagine for, with me for a moment, Jesus saying these words, remember for my good. Imagine, remember for my glory, oh my God, oh my Father, all that I have done for these people. 
Every time you sin, every time you find yourself enslaved to a new foreign master, every time that you find yourself piled up with a new burden on your soul, Jesus is standing there before the Father saying, I paid for it. Remember what I have done on the cross. Friends, Jesus is Jesus is the ultimate leader. There is no one who is more worthy of you following than Jesus. And because he is such a worthy leader, he's one that we can say, listen, for the rest of my life, for the rest of my days, me and my house, we we will serve the Lord. We'll follow you, Jesus. We will fear you, Oh God, we will see the magnitude of our sin before your face and see how Jesus paid the price. We will worship Jesus for going to the cross for him. We will follow Jesus and obeying all of his commands. We will emulate Jesus in his compassion for his people. There's no other leader like him. There's no other leader. Full of mercy and grace, kindness, and compassion, but full of truth and righteousness. This morning, I want to ask you are, are you, are you yoked to Jesus? Are, are, you, are you willing to spend your whole life following Jesus wherever he takes you? That, that's where this church is going to go. Like, that's, that's what we're going to be committed to until, until I leave here, until Jesus comes back. And I hope you'll be with us too, because in following Jesus, you find life, you find freedom, you find every one of your needs met in him. And this morning, we come to the table to be reminded that it was Jesus's body broken, his blood shed for us. This is a reminder of his compassion towards his people. And as you receive this, think of this as a covenant renewal. Jesus said, hey, I've, I've, I've put out what the covenant is. I've, I've met all of the requirements of the covenant. And what we're left with is, are we going to follow? And this meal enables us to follow Jesus all the days of our life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your kindness. So wise, so compassionate. There is no other standard of compassion out there but you. And in your great compassion and kindness, you lead us to freedom. You've set us free from from the, the bondage of sin. You've set us free from the heavy burdens that just snuff out our soul. God, and we want to surrender to a leader like that. We we want to give ourselves to you totally and completely. Would you help us, empower us by your spirit as we receive this meal? Would it be for your glory and for our good? It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.